2: So it's no secret I like to question capitalism and its more recent carnation, neoliberalism. In particular, the idea that growth and more, more, more is king. I grew up this way. Uh, We lived minimally. We had goats for milk and meat. Dad built or rebuilt everything, including our car. And mum did zero food waste like a warrior. There were no shops and no rubbish service. So repurposing our stuff, well, there was no other way. Now, as I got older, these ways stuck, and I came to see this whole less is more thing as an elegant way of living. And as a climate activist, I also came to see that most of what's ever discussed in the realm always comes back to this. We consume way too much. I mean, we can talk green energy, recycling, composting, biodegradable everything, and we need to. But all of it, in the end, is more resources, more consuming, more moving stuff around the planet. In the final wash, the ungreenwashed one, the real solution is way more, yes, elegant. It's less. But of course, less goes against the system, the whole setup that posits growth as the metric. More and more growth, jobs and growth. Only if it doesn't hold back growth. Growth for growth's sake. Sarah Wilson brings you wild ideas for a fired-up life. But enter Degrowth Economics, a modeling or a movement developed by scientists and economists from around the world that shakes all of this up and replaces economic growth with well-being as the end goal. When I first encountered it, it sounded rather kind of cottagey. Then I started to realise it might have legs. I discussed many of the premises of degrowth in my book, This One Wild and Precious Life, and more recently... Like since my book came out, 14,000 of the world's top scientists signed an open letter calling for degrowth, while New Zealand, Scotland and Iceland have committed to decoupling from GDP, which essentially is growth. I've wanted to drill down into degrowth for some time, and so I'm super excited to introduce you to my guest today, Jason Hickel. Jason's an economic anthropologist at the London School of Economics and the author of the recent book, Less Is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. And generally, he's regarded as the leading spokesman for the movement. And the thoroughly wild idea that we thrash about together is, well, simply degrowth and whether it can save us.
0: So degrowth is an idea that has been around for a couple of decades, but has really gained quite a lot of popularity uh, in recent years, uh, mostly in response to the climate crisis. And so it's it's quite a simple proposition, really. It simply says that rich nations in particular have very high levels of resource and energy use, and this is driving ecological breakdown on a global scale, by the way, with with consequences that affect the poorest communities in the global south most. So there's a deep injustice there as well. And the argument is that rich countries don't need further growth. They can achieve high levels of human well-being and even improve human well-being without growth, and at the same time while actively scaling down their use of resources and energy so as to achieve a rapid decarbonization with carbon budgets for 1.5 degrees, right? And also while reducing resource use to effectively reverse ecological breakdown, simply by scaling down less necessary forms of production so so forms of production that we don't actually need for our for our well-being and organizing the economy instead around human needs well-being social use values rather than around capital accumulation and corporate expansion <laughs> that's kind of how it that's kind of how it boils down so it's um It's very different from, I mean, when when people hear degrowth, they quite often think of things like a recession, but it's totally the opposite of recession in the sense that a recession is what happens when a capitalist growth-addicted economy fails to grow. It causes absolute social chaos, right? We have a deeply unstable system where if even a single year of no growth means chaos and poverty and inequality and so on. So degrowth is different because it's a planned reduction of specifically excess forms of resource use. Uh, in a way that actually supports people and reduces poverty and reduces inequality, et cetera. So, um, So that's kind of it, yeah.
2: Yeah, if I've heard it right, I mean, really what you're doing is taking growth and that kind of capitalist model out of the equation as the goal. So instead of saying, hey, growth, growth, growth is our goal, it's about replacing it with something else that doesn't exploit resources and cause massive inequalities. Is that right?
0: Yeah, exactly. So um, right now we have, a, we have a rather absurd economic system where the objective, I mean, and this is, this is wild if you think about it, the, um, the dominant assumption is that all sectors of the economy should grow all the time, regardless of whether or not we actually need them to, right? So regardless of what we're producing, we just need to keep producing more. <laughs> this is absurd at the best of times, but it's particularly absurd and dangerous in the middle of an ecological crisis. It prevents us from having any kind of rational discussion about what we actually want our economy to achieve, like what's it for, right? So the degrowth proposition is like, let's just think more rationally about this. Let's think about what sectors we actually want to improve, right? So things like renewable energy, public transportation, you know, public health care access, things like that. And then what sectors of the economy are clearly destructive, and we can all agree are socially less necessary, and should be actively scaled down. So things like SUV production, or private jet production, or industrial beef,
2: for you know, instance, fast fashion, yeah. for
0: instance, you know, planned obsolescence—the practice by uh, by which companies uh, produce products that are designed to break down in order to increase turnover, increase corporate profits, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there are clearly huge portions of our economy that are totally irrelevant to uh, to human well-being, and which we can actively reduce. So that's the main idea here. Now, of course, immediately people will want to ask, what about jobs? If you're reducing these sectors, then isn't that going to to have an impact on, on employment? But the answer that ecological economists give is very simple and quite inspiring, really. They simply say, look, as your economy requires less labor to produce the things you need, then you shorten the working week and you share necessary labor more evenly, right? So you take the gains in terms of more free time and so you can introduce a public job guarantee to ensure that anyone who wants to can train to participate in the most important collective projects of our generation. Things like regenerating ecosystems or, you know, building out renewable energy capacity or retrofitting homes with a living wage, uh, you're doing dignified, socially useful work. And the final piece of this is really you just, uh, you, you decommodify the core social sector to ensure that everybody has access to the public goods and services that they need to live flourishing lives. Healthcare, education, public transportation should be accessible and available to all at a high standard. So what this effectively does is that it redistributes the use of resources and energy in a way that is organized more around human well-being and improves people's lives while scaling down what is organized around elite consumption.
2: One of the arguments that I'm sure you've heard over and over, which I've also heard over and over, is that, and it's used to justify the current system, is that capitalism and growth is what has brought us you know all the all the good things you know wellness and less poverty and all these things that you've you've just referred to a lot of people such as you know and they cite of course stephen pinker's books and bill gates and jordan peterson are all on board they all argue that capitalism has brought these wonderful things and we shouldn't be getting rid of it but you've gone toe to toe with all of these people haven't you on this argument
0: yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. It's a, um, I mean, it's a, it's a very dominant narrative, and it's also very compelling. I mean, if you just look out at the world, then you see, oh, we have a capitalist system, and oh, you know, people live longer lives than they did in the past, right? So, so it, like it, on some sort of very visceral level, it seems to make sense. But actually, it's it's not accurate, and it's not supported by by empirical evidence. So let's think about this. So first, we need to understand what capitalism actually is, right? When most people think of capitalism, they quite often just assume we're talking about markets and trade, just in some generic sense. But markets and trade, of course, were around for tens of thousands of years before capitalism. And of course, they're innocent enough on their own. What distinguishes capitalism from previous economic systems is that it is specifically organized around extracting, accumulating, and maximizing profits. And it has to do more of this each year than the year before. And that's what we call growth, basically. So that's the overriding objective of the system. And to achieve that goal, capital needs to exploit nature and labor. It basically needs to take more from nature and labor than it gives back in return. I mean, that's the basic mechanism, the core logic of capital. And so it should come as no surprise that, in fact, it generates inequality and ecological breakdown on a vast scale. (laughs) Now, once we understand this, then there's no reason to assume that capitalist growth in and of itself automatically produces human progress. And in fact, for the first several hundred years of capitalist history, so from 1500 onward, it did exactly the opposite. It caused declining life expectancies, declining nutrition, declining wages for ordinary people, human catastrophe on a grand scale everywhere it went. Um, And also, remember, it was imposed on most of the world through colonialism, which involved the genocide of indigenous peoples, the mass enslavement of Africans. Slavery. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It produced famines on several continents that killed tens of millions of people. I mean, it's a, it's a bleak record. It wasn't until the late 19th century, so quite recently, that we finally saw improvements in social indicators beginning in Europe. But remember, this did not come out of thin air, and this is the important point, right? So, so what changed? Basically, progress was fought for by progressive social movements, that organized collectively and won things like labor rights, minimum wage laws, the right to votes, public health care, education, decent housing, sanitation. I mean, basic, in fact, kind of socialist provisioning, effectively, and quite often against fierce resistance by the capitalist class, right? I mean, it's not like capitalists were willing to give these things. They fought them tooth and nail. So these are the things that really drive improvements in well-being. That's what matters, Right. So that's Europe. And then in in most of the global South, these improvements did not happen until the mid-20th century after radical social movements overthrew colonial powers and started introducing progressive economic reforms that focused on meeting people's needs and redistributing land and improving wages and things like that. So the record is actually quite clear. If you want to know where human progress comes from, it comes from progressive social movements, <laughs> right? It comes from collective. Not action. capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. There's this there's this coupling, isn't there, of democracy and progress with capitalism and growth. We think that they're one and the same. And in yes. fact, it's it's the other way around. Democracy and progress survived in spite of capitalism. And got us sees these, these um I guess, these good things that Steven Pinker and so on refer to. But, look, I'm really interested. um, I know that a lot of arguments are made about, for instance, capitalism um, leading to less poverty, particularly in the last, you know, 100 years or so. But, I mean, that context, even within that narrowed context, it's a flawed theory. And I know that you've written quite a bit about this to do with what is considered poverty. Can you explain that to us? Because I I found it really Mm. interesting when you broke it down.
0: Yeah, so one of the key bits of of evidence people will point to is that there's been a really dramatic reduction in poverty over the past you know several decades, and that's thanks to neoliberal capitalism. Well, this narrative isn't isn't accurate on several on several terms. <laughs> so, the first thing is it, it really all depends on how we're measuring poverty. So, and the dominant measure for for poverty is a dollar ninety a day, which is we have to acknowledge here is extremely low. So this is like not enough to meet even the most basic human needs. And this is not, by the way, what um, an Australian or a British person or an American can buy in Somalia with $1.90 in foreign currency. This is what $1.90 in US dollars can buy in the United States. That's what is being referred to here in terms of the actual purchasing power. Wow. So what's been happening is that, yes, incomes have increased over those low thresholds. But can we claim this as a dramatic reduction in poverty? Not really in the sense that we know that empirically people require much more than that to meet basic human needs. So at minimum around uh, between five and 10, even possibly $15 a day in order to achieve, you know, decent health outcomes and normal human life expectancy, et cetera, et cetera. So when you measure poverty trends, according to these more uh, empirical thresholds, then it's clear that the reduction in poverty has been very minimal. In fact, the poverty headcount, the number of people living below poverty, has actually increased pretty dramatically since the 1980s. And where it has declined, it has been due not to neoliberal capitalism, but rather to state-led policy that has targeted provisioning for the poor, right? So, so right. policy like you Which know, sounds I'm,
2: very socialist.
0: <laughs> right. So so the, the, the main driver, of course, has been China but then also the, the leftist governments of Latin America that have basically um, introduced policy to protect the interests of the poor. And that's where we see most of the progress against poverty occurring. So again, this is not to say that incomes have not been rising. They have been rising. And this is not surprising given the fact that capitalism is clearly a very productive system, right? The problem is that the, it's been a very, very slow rate of increase, not adequate to lift most people out of poverty um, and we should remember here that this is not a charity case in the sense of uh, the, the, the global poor so f- the four billion people who live below empirical poverty lines uh, more than half the population are not some backwater of the world economy right they, uh, they are core to circuits of capital accumulation. They are the ones that produce the things that capitalist corporations rely on. I mean look around you at the clothes you you consume and the tech, the tech gadgets and the things you eat for breakfast in the morning, bananas, whatever it might be, right? You know, tea, coffee. The global sugar. stuff for sugar, exactly. These people are the ones who are rendering the majority of the labor and resources that go into the global economy. The global economy cannot survive without them. Capital accumulation is impossible without them. And yet in in return for that, they receive literally pennies, literally pennies. Uh, so this is a deeply unjust system, a deeply uh, a deeply wasteful system in the sense of since most of the value is being accumulated by rich people, then it's not, I mean, all of this growth is not benefiting the majority of humanity. To the extent that growth relies on huge amounts of resource and and energy use, this is a deeply ecologically destructive system.
2: I want to come back to some of that um, equity stuff in a moment, but I want to ask a fairly obvious question that we've left ourselves open to. If not growth as a goal for societies in terms of determining progress and wellness, then what? Are there some other examples that you can point to that are working, that can replace growth, growth, growth as the end goal?
0: We know empirically what really matters when it comes to social progress and human well-being, and this has been demonstrated over and over again. What matters is people's access to the core goods that they need to live good lives, things like housing, healthcare, education, transportation, water, energy, good, nutritious food, right? These are the things that ultimately matter. <laughs> of course, there are other things that matter as well. But when it comes to core gains in human progress, these are the things that matter. And so we need to make sure that at minimum, these are established as accessible to all. The second thing that matters is a fair distribution of income. Over and over again, we see that where you have a fair distribution of income is where you have more efficient improvements in social, in social well-being. And that should not be surprising at all Inequality is deeply corrosive to human well-being. So in other words, it's not just any production that matters. And remember, capitalist production is just, like, it's just about any production. What matters is what we're producing, uh, whether people have access to it, and how income from that production is distributed. So when you take that into account, this explains why countries like Spain... Uh, Spain has 55% less GDP per capita than the USA, right? So less than half of of the US's GDP per capita. And yet Spain outperforms the United States on all major social indicators, including a life expectancy that is five years longer, right? So if countries like Spain are able to perform so well with uh, relatively little GDP per capita, we need to ask what's making that possible? And the reason is simply that they have a less commodified economy they distribute income more fairly. Um, And these are the key key things that matter. We see that over and over again. So the idea here is like, instead of just uh, pursuing aggregate growth and just hoping that magically solves our social problems, let's instead uh, think about what we actually want to target, right? If we actually want improvements in wages or improvements in soil quality, let's target those things directly. (laughs) That's a much more rational way to approach the economy.
2: Yeah, yeah. And you've, of course, got countries like Bhutan who have used um, happiness as their their sort of indicator of progress. There's countries that have been experimenting with, with those more wellness mm. indicators. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, that takes right. it to another extent, but it's got to be thrown in the mix, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely.
0: And, in fact, so, uh, you know, Bhutan is a good example of uh, a country that's organised itself around a different kind of metric, uh, a very sophisticated metric, I'll add, I mean, it sounds kind of cheesy—the uh, happiness, the Gross National Happiness Index—but, but in fact, it's a very sophisticated survey tool that's um, that, uh, that measures, uh, you know, really core things about human about human well-being and access to resources people need to live well. But there's also several other metrics that scholars have proposed, and one of the most prominent these days is called the Genuine Progress Indicator, or GPI. And what it basically does is it, is it starts with GDP, and then what it and what it does is it subtracts negative social and ecological costs of uh, of of economic production so it gives you a more holistic understanding of of what we're doing and how it's harming or benefiting uh human lives and the ecology if politicians were to switch out gdp for something like gpi they'd be incentivized to uh, introduce policies that improve uh hu- you know human and ecological health while reducing uh negative outcomes and, and that would be a step in the right direction i think
2: yeah, so use growth where it actually serves us as opposed to just growth for growth's sake. Yeah. How much could we reduce growth in countries like the global north? And Australia, of course, even though we're in the southern hemisphere, we're part of the global north. Um, how much could we reduce growth and still maintain wellbeing? I mean, that 55% figure for Spain, is that a good indicator? How, how much should we reduce growth?
0: When it comes to this question, it helps to think about real resources and real goods rather than about uh, GDP, because GDP is a bit of an abstraction that, that, uh, that is not super useful here. So let's think about real resources and energy, for example. These are the core things that like, underpin an economy. And that's what matters also in terms of ecology. So right now, rich countries and the US and Australia are, are the worst. <laughs> they use a crazy amount of resources and energy several times over the sustainable level. And yet, interestingly, they still have a tremendous amount of poverty, right? And so we should ask why. Like, if they're using so much resources and energy, why do they solve so much poverty? I mean, look at the UK and the US where poverty is rampant. It's because resource use is not organized around meeting human needs. It's organized around servicing the interests of capital accumulation, right? So this should not be surprising. But here's the the key thing. Scientists in the degrowth research community they model that we could meet human needs at a high standard with just a fraction of the resources that rich that rich nations use so as much as 90% less energy around a fifth of the resources would be sufficient to meet human needs at a high standard right if we organize our economies around human well-being rather than around growth <laughs> so so that's wow. pretty that's, that's pretty astonishing yeah and and so that's that's a very powerful finding. And it means that like, this kind of reduction in energy use would enable us to achieve a rapid transition to renewables, again, in time to stay uh, under 1.5 degrees. So people who say that 1.5 degrees is dead, they are assuming, like that's only true if you assume continued capitalist growth in rich countries, right? If you take that assumption off the table and open up the possibility of organizing our economies differently and scaling down energy use massively, Uh, then 1.5 degrees is well back on the table and we can achieve it. And that should be our
2: objective. I'm so glad you've brought that up because, of course, we are facing a situation where the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit above pre-industrial levels is increasingly being presented to us by the, the scientists, the climate scientists, as almost impossible to achieve. But it's always within the context of what is, funnily enough, called green growth this idea that, well, we can just do exactly what we've always been doing, i.e. grow, 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 but we're going to use renewable energy. And that's never really sat comfortably with me as a logical proposition, because growth and growth and consuming more and more resources, it just doesn't stack up, does it? And to produce anything, whether it's solar panels or, I don't know, a biodegradable cup, it's still using resources, if only energy, you know, f- fossil fueled energy. I know that you have been presenting quite compelling arguments against green growth and this idea that renewables will save us. But scientists are now sort of saying, well, actually, it's not going to get us to where we need to be. Can you explain why?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So, first of all, green growth ideas have been around for the past 50 years. They sound new and refreshing, but we need to remember... Uh, this is an this, these are old claims um, that keep promising that salvation is just around the corner if just we wait for capitalism to solve the problem all by itself, right? Which of course never happens. So, and now we have several decades of st- very strong evidence on this, uh, and there's a strong consensus in the scientific community that green growth is not a thing. It's it's interesting because our politicians continue to talk about this, um, and it's one of the most it sounds good. It sounds good. <laughs> it, of course, it sounds good. I mean, who wouldn't agree with it? It sounds wonderful. But it's a, a very powerful framing device that has no empirical grounding. It's it's extraordinary that we have this very dominant narrative that runs against what scientists actually tell us. So that's remarkable. Um, and the reason is basically this. First, when it comes to the question of emissions, yes, of course, we can decouple GDP from emissions. So have a have a rising GDP and a declining emissions. The question is, can we reduce emissions fast enough to stay within carbon budgets for one point5 or two degrees because remember this is not about just any reduction this is about rapid reduction in order to achieve paris goals and when it comes to that the answer basically is is no not if rich countries continue to pursue growth and here's the reason because growth causes energy demands to go up so the more the more you grow the economy the more energy the economy uses because it takes of course energy to uh, to produce and transport and uh, Dispose of stuff, right? And the more energy you use, the more difficult it is to decarbonize the energy system. I mean, it's clearly more difficult to decarbonize a bigger energy system than a smaller one. And this is really the core principle of climate economics: is that the more energy you use, the uh, the more difficult it is to decarbonize, and the less energy you use, the easier it is to to, to decarbonize. So, and when I'm talking about energy use here, I'm not just talking about like let's switch off lights in our houses. I mean, of course that helps, but the majority of the energy in our economy is used by corporations and industry. So it's industrial production that matters here. (laughs) So we have to shift our focus to the productive system and start scaling down less necessary forms of production. That's where the big gains come from. So that's one thing. But the second thing is this, even if that wasn't a problem, let's imagine we switch to renewable energy tomorrow and maintain a growth-based economy okay, well, renewable energy doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from materials to build solar panels and batteries and wind farms and so on. And so if you're growing energy use, you're growing material extraction necessary to do that, which is also ecologically destructive. And then furthermore, there's the question of all the other resources that a growing economy uses beyond just energy. Uh, It uses material resources. And when it comes to the question of material resources, we know there's no evidence of an absolute decoupling. There's a strong relationship between the two. So the more you grow, in every case, the more resources you use. It's a a very strong relationship demonstrated in the empirical science. So for all of these reasons, growth becomes a problem. (laughs) Uh, But again, not just any growth, just uh, growth in rich countries that have already exceeded safe uh, and sustainable levels of, of resource use.
2: Yeah. There's also the psychological element, I would imagine, because I think when we hear that something's renewable or something's green, we then go and consume more of it.
0: Look, we're, we're sort of victims of a very cynical ploy by by some firms, which is basically, I mean, everyone has anxiety about the ecological crisis. Let's face it, we, we all feel deeply uncomfortable about it and we want to do something, right? That very honest urge to do something is manipulated by advertisers and and firms to to get us to to buy products on the grounds that we're going to solve that problem and fix our anxiety by buying more. And this is, I mean, this is the logic of capitalism when it comes to solving capitalist crises is that it tries to fix the problem with yet more capitalism, and that's just not going to, it's not going to, uh, to cut it. So I think we need a shift in perspective.
2: I always say that we're almost got a cult-like addiction or adherence to capitalism. We, We find it so difficult to see any other models as working or being valid. It's exactly like a cult. We're inside it. We think that anything outside of it is a problem and certainly couldn't cut it. But then there's this common basic logic, isn't there, that we currently consume, at least in the global north, the equivalent of about five planet earth's in resources like that can't stack up that can't keep going like and it's as you say it's making us miserable because we are now aware of that we also know that disposable anything like single use anything it's got to go somewhere it can't stack up all of that is pressing upon us it's systemic so we feel powerless I think big part of the movement that we need to engage in is actually seeing what an alternative could look like. And I'm wondering if you can sell in for us what degrowth could look like. What could our lives look like if we did change things?
0: Mm. No, there are, there are so many extraordinary benefits. So, yeah, so first of all, the, the the shorter working week and the public job guarantee, This the empirical results on this are amazing. When you have shorter working weeks, there's a huge benefit we see in terms of people's well-being their happiness, their mental health, gender equality in uh, in households improves <laughs> quite dramatically. I mean, there are all sorts of gains here. At the same time, also uh, resource use and energy use declines as well with shorter working hours. And so, these are amazing benefits. Um,
2: and they're already rolling out, aren't they? It's not like it's a pipe dream. Parts of Scotland, uh, in France, Belgium has just announced recently that they're going to have these systems where I think employees can opt to run the the shorter week trial, so a four-day week trial, and then vote at the end of it whether they want to continue that or go back to five days. So these things are actually starting to happen because the science is that convincing.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, there, there are several trials of shorter working weeks that have been done already and several that are underway. So it's a very exciting space. I also mentioned the possibility of a public job guarantee. And these two policies together, the shorter working week and the public job guarantee, would would literally eliminate unemployments. I mean, they would make unemployment uh, a thing of the past, which is what it should be, and thereby eliminate also economic insecurity, right? We would no longer have this question of, oh, uh, I'm constantly feeling insecure about the possibility that I will be hungry or not be able to pay my rent, et cetera, et cetera. So that's gone. Uh, and we know that with economic security comes mental health, comes relational stability, comes happiness and an ability to like think about the future more positively, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very, it's very, po- it's very powerful in that sense. And then several of the other more specific proposals, we talk about ending food wastes, uh, dramatically scaling down advertising. We know that with less advertising, people again have a better sense of self, uh, a lot less emotional insecurity. We talk about canceling student debts to liberate people from unnecessary growth imperatives. Uh, all of these things have been proven to, A, be very popular when polled. The vast majority of these policies have overwhelming majority support wherever they've been polled and also lead to strong improvements in social outcomes. So this is uh, this is a better society we're talking about <laughs> to say nothing about the sense of relief that we will get from having less polluted, less destructive economies uh, and and being able to live in a world where we're not... Constantly plagued by the feeling that we are exploiting the living world and exploiting other human beings just to get by, right? That's a miserable feeling that depresses all of us. So, um, a transition to a more just and ecological society—we have, we have, we have nothing to lose and everything to gain. We have uh, a more stable, more habitable planet, more just society to gain.
2: Yeah, and I think again, these aren't ideas that are just being pulled out of thin air they are being discussed very seriously and implemented in different parts of the world. We had Rutger Bregman on the podcast, who obviously talks about a universal basic income. That is being discussed, you know, very seriously in in different parts of the world. And ending technological obsolescence, that idea of these products that conk out on us and we've got to buy the next version, you know, in this increasingly less amount of time, it feels wrong. All of that stuff, it's like we haven't had A nuanced, discerning conversation about this, because we're just caught up in this growth model, which just doesn't serve us. And we've arrived at a point in history where I think that is becoming patently obvious. But I want to go back to this idea of equality, which is, of course, an area that you've studied and worked in for a long time. And you've got a book called The Divide that talks about these themes. But one of the biggest arguments that I'm sure, once again, you've come across before, is that, you know, the trickle-down theory, that was uh, rising tides will lift all ships, that that if the rich are rich and are caught up in this capitalist dream, it'll trickle down to the poor people. And this is sort of along the lines of what Steven Pinker and Bill Gates talk about, you know, we can sort of donate it down to these poor people in Africa and we'll all get richer together. Now, you've already shown that, you know, this idea of we're lifting people out of poverty is a furphy based on that $1.90 poverty line. Um, But I know that you've also talked about the idea that this trickling down business also doesn't stack up. Can you explain that one to us?
0: Actually, in fact, it's the opposite. It's, uh, in the global economy, there's actually a, a, trickle, a, dr- a dramatic trickle-up effect. It's more than a trickle. It's like a flow-up effect. <laughs> we've, we've demonstrated this in our, in our research uh, empirically. It's fascinating. So growth in rich countries, we know, relies on a huge net appropriation of resources from poor countries, right? There's a huge flow of resources, a net flow of resources from the global south to the global north. Uh, And this is what sustains high levels of income and consumption and corporate growth in rich countries, right? And it's also exactly what keeps poor countries poor, (laughs) because these are resources, things like land use, things like uh, economic capacity, things like labor, that are necessary for human development and meeting human needs. But instead of being able to do that, it's all being roped into servicing northern capital accumulation and elite consumption. And so these are two sides of the same coin.
2: Yeah, I just didn't realise that. I always assumed that, yep, we were passing aid money down to these, these poorer nations, and that's how they were being lifted out of their poverty to a certain extent. But not only is it, I think I've got this right, only 5% of all new income from, from um, global growth trickles down to the poorest 60%. You're actually saying the net effect is such that the global south, so the poorer nations, a funding this this growth 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 model that serves the rich.
0: Yes, that's right. Uh, poor countries are basically developing rich countries <laughs> rather than the other way around, and that can be difficult for us to get our minds around because we're so used to hearing discourse about aid, foreign aid, foreign aid, foreign aid, and so it seems as though the rich countries are sort of benevolent givers of charity to the poor countries. But in fact, when you look at the underlying economic system, the underlying flow of resources and labor and wealth, it's the opposite. And um, I mean, this has been an argument that global South economists have made for a very long time. and now, over the over the past several years, scientists have demonstrated it in, in empirical terms. Uh, it's it's quite it's quite disturbing, really. So what this means is that, um, you know, some people will say, like, look, if rich countries stop growing, then is that, going to, is that going to harm poor countries? And the answer is actually, is actually no, the opposite. <laughs> um, it's going to mean releasing poor countries uh, in the global South from the grip of extractivism and liberating them to use their resources and labor and economic capacities around human development objectives and meeting human needs rather than around servicing northern growth which is exactly the kind of transformation we need. So this has strong benefits in terms of global equality and, uh, and development in the global south too.
2: What's keeping us in this stranglehold? When I say us, what's keeping the global south in this dynamic? Why hasn't it shifted? Why has this been allowed to continue for, for decades now?
0: Okay, yeah. So this is, um, I mean, it, it's a result of of, uh, of the way that our global economy is structured, specifically since 1980. Okay, so let me give a little bit of history. We all know that colonialism was a very destructive system that clearly appropriated resources from the global South on a vast scale, right? <laughs> then radical social movements in the global South overthrow colonialism in the middle of the 20th century. And they usher in the this, this new era of progressive um, governments uh, across most of the global South that uh, introduced economic reforms that were profoundly beneficial to Global South communities and improved economic sovereignty and, and, uh, and got rid of colonial forms of exploitation.
2: So what kind of countries are you talking about here? What, what are some great examples that we can just keep in mind as you explain this to us?
0: Take Indonesia, the Latin American countries were doing this. Take Iran, the early post-independence Congo. Uh, over, I mean, over and over again. I mean, the, the, the history books are full of these examples, actually. Most Global South countries were taking these steps but what's interesting is that this posed a threat to northern capital accumulation. And northern states and firms reacted with a very strong backlash, in the first case, overthrowing um, many of these progressive leaders. So like the first independent leader of the Congo, for example, Patrice Lumumba, was overthrown in a Western-backed coup. And there were, there were dozens others uh, that suffered a similar fate. Um, and the idea is get rid of these progressive leaders and install sort of more right-wing leaders that will uh, serve Western interests a little bit more easily. <laughs> it was kind of the idea. But then the major, the major blow came in the 1980s with the imposition of what we call structural adjustment programs across most of the Global South, imposed by the World Bank and the IMF. And the idea was they were going to leverage their power as creditors to force Global South countries to reverse the progressive reforms of the post-colonial era and cheapen their labor and resources once again, and Western firms benefited profoundly from this renewed access to cheap labor and resources in the global South, which restored rates of growth in the global North, but had a, a really devastating effects on uh, on global South communities, where you know obviously wages declined, poverty uh, poverty rates rose, inequality increased, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the world we're living in.
2: Have I got this right? So essentially, these these. Global South countries were getting back on their feet after being colonialized, and they were probably bringing in reforms that were a bit socialist. They were probably bringing in sort of uh, welfare, health, schooling, these kinds of things. And the North was like, we don't like the look of this. This is, you know, we're not going to be able to get cheap labour for all these resources that we rely on for our products. And so you're saying that these... The IMF and so on, these big international monetary structures stepped in and interfered and said, sounds like they were kind of making some kind of threat, like, we will, I don't know, add extra interest rates to your loans, to your debt if you don't change. I mean, was it that kind of thing? Are you talk when you say that they sort of were leveraging, is that what you're talking about?
0: So first the, the key thing to understand is that is that borrowing in the world economy is mostly in foreign currency and mostly in the US dollar. What that means is that is that interest rates are very closely tied to what's happening in the US economy. So global south countries had been borrowing uh, from US lenders and in in 1980 um, the interest rates on these loans shot up really dramatically from low single digits to to, to double digits, like 20%. Um, and they became unpayable. And so Global South countries were threatening to default on these unpayable loans. Uh, Wall Street lenders were overexposed to these bad loans. And they said, look, if these defaults happen, then uh, it's going to cause the US financial system to collapse. And so we can't let this happen. We have to intervene somehow and force them to repay back these debts. And that's what they did through these structural adjustment programs. They were like, look, you have to repay the debts. We're going to roll your debts over for a little while in return for you reversing all of those progressive reforms that you've been instituting over the past couple of decades. That was their main instrument for kind of pushing back that progressive reform movement. Uh, and and that's still the world we live in today.
2: Wow. I'm so glad I asked this because you explain it really well. I've heard of these moments in history and I haven't quite understood how it all links together and lands us where we are today. But that's gets close to making sense to me as a very um, economically literate person. But I guess one of the arguments that comes up for me, again, no doubt you've you've come across it, is that if we're going to be talking about degrowth and if we're wanting to ensure um, equality, insisting that some of these developing nations, which have been on the back foot for so long, also adhere to degrowth, is, is that part of the degrowth movement or are there sort of yes. exceptions made?
0: Yeah, so this is interesting. I mean, of course, there's been a strong pushback against degrowth. And one of the arguments people will say is, oh, no, you can't force global south countries to stop growing. And the the funny thing is that no one has ever claimed that they should. (laughs) I mean, it's literally not part of of, of degrowth policy proposals or science. And so it's literally a straw man that people just like to repeat because they feel triggered, I guess or they want to smear the movement, but it's not true. Uh, I mean, even a cursory reading of degrowth will liberate people from that false assumption.
2: The degrowth applies to the global north. We need to reduce our consumption and we can allow these developing nations almost to catch up and we get to some kind of what threshold, some point where we're consuming the same amount and it's dramatically less than what it was before at a global level. Is that what we're saying here?
0: That's right. Yeah. So degrowth is targeted specifically at rich countries, which have an, uh, an excess use of resources and very high levels of energy use. So that's key. And again, the rich countries are the ones that are, res- that are overwhelmingly responsible for climate and ecological breakdown. But no, I mean, the, the tricky thing is that there's, there's no country that, that succeeds in the way that we would want to see. But there are some that get pretty close. The one that always pops up at the top of these lists is Costa Rica. Costa Rica has managed to achieve really pretty remarkable uh, human health and well-being outcomes, including a life expectancy that's longer than that in the US, right? Um, It has well-being levels that match the Scandinavian nations. And it does that almost entirely within planetary boundaries. So it has very modest levels of resource and energy use. And so that's, that's pretty impressive. And the reason for that is that they have had a progressive government for the past half century that has invested heavily in Public health care and other forms of public provisioning that have just really ensured that people have access to, to decent lives. Now, that's not to say that Costa Rica doesn't have problems. It does. It clearly does. And so um, we have to qualify this by saying we we still need much better. But uh, it's a it's clearly a step in the right direction.
2: I've got to ask, and this is one that you know I'm asked all the time when I'm talking about this this idea: is is there enough time to change? An entire system which dominates the globe. In my mind, I'm thinking it requires a world dictator to kind of impose this upon us because rich people aren't going to give this up. You know, when our nations, we're not going to give up our consumption and our growth model and spread the resources and drop our ownership of things, our consumption of things to arrive at that sweet spot in Costa Rica together with all the poor nations. Like, is there enough time or should we be sticking to the Green economy model.
0: Yeah, so yeah, I, I get this question quite often, and my take is basically this. I mean, it's true that we don't have a lot of time, and so the idea is, well, we, sh- we shouldn't try to to totally overhaul a system if we don't have much time to you know to do that, and we should focus on trying to work within the existing system. But my position is basically we've been trying that for a long time now, and it hasn't worked. And. It seems a bit mad if you ask me to continue trying and with the likelihood that we'll continue to fail, especially when the empirical evidence indicates that that's the case. So um, I think we need to start talking about uh, about a more systemic transformation. Um, and look, in, in terms of can this be accomplished within democracies, of course it can. And the reason is because we know, again, from uh, from survey evidence that people strongly favor the kinds of policies that we're calling for here. And so the question then becomes, why don't we have those policies in place already if we live in democracies? And the reason is because this has not yet ever really been up for real democratic debates because our political parties have not taken these ideas on board and put them forward. And because of high levels of political capture, whereby campaign finance and so on, uh, elite interests are overwhelmingly represented by our politicians, we're going to need a strong political movement to kind of realize and bring into being the desires that people actually have for how the economy should work. And I want to emphasize here that environmentalists cannot do this alone. It's highly unlikely they'll be able to achieve such a movement. There needs to be an alliance between environmentalists and labor movements. That's going to be really crucial here. And so we need to align and foreground demands that benefits working class communities, such as the shorter working week and the living wage and the uh, the job guarantee and the universal basic services, all of which are core to a just transition. Every movement for, for progress has only ever succeeded uh, through collective organising, and that's what's going to, have to, uh, going to have to happen now.
2: So for those of us listening, what kinds of things can we do to that effect? What are the questions we can be asking? What are the forums we can be engaged in?
0: Yeah, I think that it's, um, it's important to always press politicians on this question. Like, they're, they're always calling for more growth. They're always saying they're going to deliver more growth. We need to be asking them, uh, growth of what and for whom? Right and why? Right, like what's the objective here? It's just this ingrained assumption. So we need to push back on that. I think that's uh, what's going to be important is is actively building social movements. And and again, that takes that takes real work. And most people in the global north these days are not used to that. We need to take inspiration from say the civil rights movements or the anti-colonial movements or the suffragettes that uh, did the hard work of of building the necessary solidarities and alliances to fundamentally transform systems. So I think that's going to be important here too. So get involved with local movements or build them if they're not there, pressure political parties, uh, get involved in, in media outreach because it's going to be crucial to be able to communicate these messages and bring more people on board. I think that's key.
2: Well, it's all certainly a tricky and complex. And while I personally find fun topic, I've spent a lot of time wrestling with it over the years, the past two or three years, explaining it or defending it to friends who are less, well, less is more than me. So here's where I land with it all when I'm debating it at, I don't know, barbecues or dinner parties. The current system is broken. We can't keep growing on a finite planet. We in the West consume the equivalent of five planets worth of resources every year. And we can do the maths, right? It doesn't add up. Now, capitalism has certainly served its role. It definitely brought about some betterment. But we shouldn't get too romantic. Capitalism is not directly coupled with progress or democracy. Now, it's operated very nicely in tandem with these things in some of our recent history, for sure. But its primary driver, growth, is now, in 2022 largely unprogressive and inequitable, if not undemocratic. So degrowth presents a logical proposition, I guess. Do progress and democracy without the growth? Now, it's very easy to chuck a whole heap of whatabouts at a theory that questions the status quo like this one. And I'm glad Jason was able to give me some great rebuttals for the next time I get hit with these kind of whatabouts my mind was blown away by the idea that poverty isn't actually going down, which is the opposite to what a lot of thinkers and politicians I encounter really draw on as a given. Unless, of course, we're willing to accept that a poverty line of $1.90 is okay and has some kind of scientific basis, which it doesn't. That said, I have two remaining whatabouts myself, though. I'm still not sure that decoupling from capitalism can happen fast enough, and certainly not faster than switching to a green economy, which is an argument Jason has certainly made. My other what about is, what about we do both? Like, what if we keep the structure of growth for now, but incorporate the humanising ideas of degrowth that could go a long way to getting us prioritising growth only in so far as it serves us socially and from an equity point of view while not stepping over those planetary boundaries to be honest it's not that jason or other degrowthers don't allow for this like this idea of doing both like any theory that endeavors to swing us from a destructive status quo adherence degrowth exists to drag the pendulum back in some kind of balance to get us debating better ways wrestling at those dinner parties, feeling some hope together. As I say all of this, and I'm trying to get my thoughts together after my chat with Jason, I'm reminded of a Wendell Berry quote, and I looked it up just now so I could get it right here with you. The only question we have to ask is what's the right thing to do? What does the earth require of us if we are to continue to live on it? I think that sums it up. Anyway, until next time, my friends, stay wild.